so good to be with you guys. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I lead our downtown congregation. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. You don't have a Bible, don't worry about it, but I'd always encourage you. Uh, if it's on your phone, put it, uh, put it in airplane mode. If you have a text, bring it with you. Just it's good for you to see for yourself and get accustomed to the Bible you read every day, every week. Um, we're teaching from that same text. You have access to the same things we do. Our uh, authority of this church is built on God's word, not any person's word here. So I want you to be able to see that week in, week out. So we're in the gospel of Matthew and we're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not the end of Matthew, we're gonna die in this book, but we're going to be coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in chapter seven, there's 28 chapters. You guys can do the math. So as Jesus brings his teaching to a close in the Sermon on the Mount, he's gonna close it with these really strong statements about what it means to follow him, about what it means to be his true disciple. And the verses we're looking at today you're probably familiar with them. You maybe heard a, some version of them and they're fairly straightforward, but there's a lot going on. So let's, let's go and look at it. Matthew 7, verse 13 through 14. This is the text we're studying tonight. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Now, there is a lot to consider in this text, and we're going to dive into it, but I want to first address the simplicity of Jesus' statement here. So, you and I, we have grown up in this age of information, of technology, of knowledge, and when you get more knowledge of the world, if there's anything that we have learned collectively together, is that life is really complicated, that life is really complicated. We know more than anyone that every individual is unique. We know that cultures are unique. We know that all those things are shaped by unique stories and personalities and histories and brain chemistry and all the different things that influence all the decisions that we make. And yet Jesus is taking all of that information, all of that data, of billions and billions of people and thousands of cultures, and he's boiling it down and categorizing them into two paths. He's saying when it relates to God and his kingdom, for all the variety, there's only truly two paths in how you relate to God and his kingdom. He takes something incredibly complex and he simplifies it. Now, before we just breeze past that, some of us, maybe you grew up in church, you kind of read statements like that, you're kind of used to it, you go, yeah, I believe it, I think, and I, you just move on without thinking about the weight of what Jesus is saying. But I think there's others of us, maybe more of us, when you really think about what Jesus is saying in light of the knowledge we have of the world and all the different cultures and all the different types of people, you can kind of recoil a little bit from how simple that statement is, right? You can find yourself wanting to say, hey, Jesus, could you give me a little bit more clarity on that? Give me a little bit more nuance as to what you mean when you make this statement. But I want you to know that when it comes to simplifying complexities, it can come from two very different sources. Simplifying complexities comes from two very different sources. So on the one hand, you can simplify complexity out of dysfunction. You can oversimplify the world out of your own dysfunction. This happens all the time. We can view the world, we can view people in very simple terms. Why? Because it's easier for us. Not because it's true 
We'd prefer things be simple so we don't have to think, so we don't have to engage, so we don't have to change, so we don't have to admit we don't know as much as we think that we do, so we have to admit we shouldn't be as confident as we are. I mean, this, this sort of simple view of the world, it defined me in my early 20s. I don't know, for you in your early 20s, maybe you're super sophisticated, I was not. For me, the world was black and white. That's how I saw the world. And so sometimes simple views of the world, they manifest themselves in comical ways. So I remember one time, me and Lorna had just gotten married, and I was telling her, I'm so full, I can't eat another bite. We just had a, this amazing meal, and we'd just eaten some cake, and I'm, and I'm saying how full I am, and then I begin to eat broccoli. And Lauren goes, well, why are, why are you eating broccoli? You just said how full you are. I said, well, and, and as the words came out of my mouth, I knew it was wrong sort of thing. As I said, I go, well, I need broccoli to offset the cake. And she's like, how do you think math works? And I was like, well, in my mind, I'd never said it, but I kind of thought the healthy calories negated the unhealthy calories. That's a very simple, simple is a nice word for it, a very simple way of viewing the world. And it's a simple way of gaining some LBs pretty quick. So sometimes it's comical, but then those simple views of the world become more harmful when they begin to hurt other people. So I, once again, as a 23 year old, I viewed the world right and wrong, righteous or sinful, black and white, and I didn't really have a category with what to do for people who were hurting. I didn't have a category for feelings. I didn't have a category for backstories and the family of origin and all the complexity of life. And so I'll never forget, my very first time I ever counseled someone as a pastor at this church, I was a resident, actually, I'm overstating it. I was a resident at this church and I met with someone and I remember thinking, it's my very first time ever counseling somebody. So he comes into my office, he begins to tell me his struggles and it becomes clear to me, oh, this guy is struggling to believe the word of God and I can see a root of pride in it. And so I did what I thought was best and I told him he needed to repent. Because in my simple economy, every issue in your life, every dysfunction always boiled down to your own personal sin. So that meant the solution to every problem was repentance. You had to confess your sin, own up to it, and turn from it to God. I was so forceful in the way that I communicated this to this young man that he began to cry. You began to cry. So I stopped and I said, hey man, are you okay? And he looked at me and goes, oh yeah, sorry. He wiped his tears away, something happens, don't worry about it. And I just go, okay, cool, let's move on. I just moved right on. Didn't think twice about it. So for the next 15 minutes, I begin to go back to, back to my main point, you're prideful and you need to repent. Well then within 15 minutes, he begins to cry again. And even when he cries a second time, even my 23-year-old caveman brain says, me thinks something is wrong, right? Even I can perceive, huh, two times in 15 minutes is kind of excessive, okay? And so, <laughs> take it easy. Uh, <laughs> and it tur- turns out, wouldn't you know it, that I had hurt, I had hurt him with my words. I know that's hard for you to imagine. This is an old version of me, okay? But I had hurt him. And there was issues in his life, but guess what? What he needed was not a rebuke, he needed encouragement. And my, but my simple worldview didn't have a category for how his hurts would affect his faith. I had taken one thing the Bible does say, the Bible says when you have sin, you should repent of it. But I isolated that one truth and I ignored everything else the Bible had to say. I ignored the, the things going on in his life 
And I had an oversimplified view of the world out of my own dysfunction, out of my own limitations, out of my own desire for certainty, not because I was right. Your level of confidence doesn't determine whether or not you're correct. Some of you need to hear that loud and clear. Confidence does not mean you're correct. I wasn't taking into consideration all the other information. This sort of oversimplification of the world and people happens all the time, you know that. You do it. We oversimplify out of our own dysfunction. But don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not simplifying complexity out of dysfunction because there's another way to simplify complexity and it's out of expertise. It's out of expertise. See, experts, the, the concept of an expert is that they would have such a grasp of a subject or discipline that they are able to make sense of what appears confusing. They're able to see clear, uh, clearly to what to us seems disjointed and impossible to untangle. I mean, this is why we as a society put all sorts of professions through rigorous training and education because we recognize we need experts to see through complexity to notice patterns and themes to bring order out of chaos. So me and Lauren have actually been meeting with this uh, engaged couple in our church for a couple of weeks now and the soon to be husband, he's about to begin med school and we're talking the other night of just the amount of schooling. If you're a doctor in this room, you know this. If you're in med school, you know this. Like the amount of schooling you have to go through is incredible, but why? Well, because we want doctors to be experts. We need them to have clarity that we can't find on WebMD, right? Nobody goes to WebMD and walks away thinking, I'll be okay. No one thinks that. You always walk away thinking, I got two hours, might as well spend it all. Like, that, that's what you walk away thinking. Because turns out, I can't diagnose myself based on a Google, right? Based on my symptoms, because I don't have expertise. What can, I need you to hear this, what can feel like lack of nuance from an expert can actually be their superior understanding of a subject. What can feel like lack of nuance to you can actually be an expert's superior understanding of a subject. They are able to give answers and solutions to what feel to us like impossible questions. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount, or just the Bible in general, I'm telling you, there's gonna be times you read verses and you think, really? Is, that, is it really that simple? Is it really that clear? When Jesus says all of life and it relates to God boils down to two gates and two paths, is it really like that? You have to know when he's saying that, he's saying it as the only one who sees reality for what it truly is. He's the expert. Just because it's not clear to you doesn't mean it's not clear. It's arrogance to assume that because it's unclear to me, it must be unclear to everyone. No, all it means is it's unclear to you. Jesus knows all of our questions, all of our concerns, every pushback, every argument, and he can still authoritatively make the statement that there's two paths because he's God in the flesh. He has unparalleled authority and knowledge and expertise. That's his basis for such a claim. So now let's examine his claims. Here's what he said, let's read it again. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. So Jesus is describing life with God and life without God in the form of two different gates with two different paths. 
Now, the descriptions he gives concerning each of these have to do with their size, their dimensions, the amount of people on the path, and what it costs to find it. So the first one, he says, the gate is wide, the road is broad, and many are on it. If you typically read the ESV, which we typically preach from here at this church, some translations have included the translation of easy. The gate is wide, the road is easy. And the reason they did that is to capture the sense of what Jesus is saying. But that word easy in the Greek, actually, is just the term broad and spacious. The idea is the gate is wide and the road is broad. And what Jesus is teaching us is that it doesn't take much effort to find this gate and walk on this road. Here's the logic of it. The bigger the gate, the easier it is to find, right? The more broad the road, the easier it is to locate. It's not restrictive is what he's saying. It's not hard to find, it's not restrictive. It's easy to bring yourself and all of your life with you on this journey. And we're told on the, for, towards this wide gate, on this broad road, that there are many people on it. Now, when it comes to the number of people on the wide road, I want us to be careful not to assume that this must mean that not very many people will be in the kingdom of God. As a surface reading of this, you would assume, well, if many go to destruction and few find the narrow way, then that must mean the very, very few people will be in the kingdom of God. But when you read scripture, you always interpret it first and foremost with other text, with other scripture. And I want to show you in the exact same gospel of Matthew, we're told that there are many people in the kingdom of God. Matthew 8, 1 is a couple of verses later. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For many. It's obvious from those texts that I just read that there will be many people who are in the kingdom of God. So then what does Jesus mean? What does he mean many people are on the road headed for destruction? I think he's trying to teach us about the nature of the broad way. He's saying this is what is most normal and what is easiest for people to do. That the broad way doesn't require any intentionality, doesn't require any thoughtfulness to be on this road. The idea is if you go with the natural flow of your life, this is where you'll end up. If you go with the natural flow of your family, no matter where you grew up, the natural flow of your culture, of your society, then you'll end up on the broad road. So that's the wide gate, broad road. Then he says, there's a narrow gate with a difficult path that few find. Here's his point, it's restrictive by nature. By its nature, it's restrictive, and by its nature, it requires intentionality. So once again, the dimensions of the gate. Logically, the smaller the gate is, the more you'll have to look for it to find it. That's the idea. The smaller something is, the more intentionality you'll have to have to pursue it and seek it. By its nature, it requires thoughtfulness in order to walk down it. The imagery is kind of the idea like it's off the beaten path so that there's going to be difficulty and cost associated with it that you wouldn't experience if you went on the more broad and casual path. This is why people are less inclined to go down it. Yet Jesus says, it's this path, not the broad one, that leads to life. And it's at this moment 
where the two gates and the two paths, they find their true significance and they find their true meaning. Jesus is not your life coach. He's not your life coach saying, hey, listen to me, we'll tighten up that frame and you'll get a little bit better and life will be a little bit happier. Or if you don't listen to me, you'll be a little less happy, but at the end of the day, what real, what real harm will come to you? He's not your life coach. He's saying, not me, Jesus is saying that the gates and the corresponding paths that they're on, they either, either lead to real, substantial, eternal life, or they lead to real, substantial devastation and death. That's what he's saying. And the point he's making, there's no third way. There's no third way. It's one or the other. And this is where we have a massive disconnect with God. Because in our sin and our rebellion against him, we begin to question just how serious he is about each of those promises. We begin to think, I mean, yeah, but how, how good is this life really? I know some Christians, and I know people who are really involved in church. I mean, how much better is their life really than mine? I'm pretty happy. I'm not always happy, but I'm not super bummed about my life. And is the destruction that real? Could that many people who I love who are really nice, could they really be that wrong? Maybe it's just more of like a tactic he's using. There's no real destruction. He just wants to get us to trust him more. Um, Lauren and I, my wife, we were fortunate enough take our kids on a trip to Colorado about a month ago. The high was 62, why do we live here? I don't understand why we live here. We should just all go together, they can't stop all of us. Um, it was unbelievable. And one really fun thing we were able to do with my kids, I know most of you don't have kids, but one thing we were able to do is actually go on a hike with them because when they were younger, we had tried and it ended, I mean, terribly. I mean, we're five minutes into the hike, kids are melting down, there's mutinies. I'm making all sorts of threats about I'll leave you on this mountain sort of thing. I and mean, we're, we're getting back and we're barely a family still. And so like, that's where we were at a couple of years ago and like hiking is the worst, okay? But this last year, they did great. It was so fun to hike with them. And one of the things that I know, I'm not an aficionado when it comes to hiking, but what I, what I noticed is when we were hiking, people would make small talk, like as you're going up and they're coming down. And one thing that, that people would ask me if I was coming down the trail, or I would ask them, is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because I know for me, I asked that because I was carrying Henry. I was like, tell me it's worth it, okay? I need to know that I'm doing this and I'm gonna see something incredible at the end of this trail. And our last hike actually in Colorado, um, I asked a woman, I said, hey, is it worth it? She literally goes, no, nah, you should turn around. I was like, oh, seriously? She's like, yeah, just turn around now. I was like, oh. And I didn't listen to her. I got up there and I was like, she was so right. I should not have done that. Um, but that's really the question. That's really our, when it comes to God, that is the question we are really asking and don't even know how to articulate sometimes is are the promises of reward and judgment, how real are they? Is it worth it? Like, really, at the end of this path, there is a real reward and real judgment. Because what's fascinating is the very first sin that came into existence in humanity, it was rooted in this questioning of the life and death promised by God. Genesis 3, 1 through 5, this is Satan tempting Eve. This is before sins in the world. This is what happened. Satan said, he said to the woman, did God actually say, that's how it always starts, Temptation always begins with, what did God really say? 
you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's questioning his word. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She's saying this is the way to life for us. God told us this. But God said, verse three, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now you can make a big point about, well, he didn't say technically you shouldn't touch it. He didn't, he never said that. But she's still generally right. She says, if we eat of it, there's consequences. There's death associated with it. Now verse four is where he begins to twist the knife. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He questions God's judgment. He says, you're not going to die. That's just being an overzealous parent. He's just, it's like me telling my kids, no more screen time. They know I'm bluffing. They know. I can't parent them without Netflix. What would I do, right? He's just saying, he's making some promises, but he's not going to really do it. You won't really die. He questions God's judgment. And then verse 5 For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. He's saying, and the life he did promise you, he's actually holding out. I know you're made in his image, but you could be even more like him if you disobeyed him. Satan tempts you, tempts me to doubt, how serious is God really about these promises of life and death? And yet, throughout the Bible, do you you know what God keeps telling you, humanity, his people? He keeps telling us, oh, when it comes to me, the decision is life or death. I'm gonna give you four verses to show you that. Genesis 2, 16, this is before sin is in the world. It's what God tells Adam and Eve, tells Adam in particular. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may, sure, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, life. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, life and death. Well, then Moses Speaking to Israel, right before they go into the promised land, at the end of his teaching to them before he dies, he says this, Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. But they keep choosing death. So God sends the prophets. And Jeremiah is one of the prophets, he says, and and to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, behold, I, have, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And then God sends his son, his ultimate, his final word to the world. And what does Jesus say? Enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Do you see the stark promises of God made to us have always been how he's spoken to us. But oftentimes though, we live like it's not that serious. We live like the life isn't that good and the judgment isn't that bad. Sure, our lives would be a little better and maybe a little worse, but at the end of the day, there's no real consequence, no real reward. And I need you to hear me on this. This is our problem with God. It's not his narrowness, it's his promises. Our problem, we like to talk, especially if you're here, maybe you're you're not a Christian, I'm really glad that you're here. But maybe if you're a struggling Christian, you think, I don't know if I believe in this anymore, we tend to always highlight, well, he's too restrictive. He commands me to do too many things. It's too narrow. But that's a facade. 
That's not true. Because what I have seen again and again and again is human beings will take on restrictive measures. Human beings will choose narrow paths. Human beings will pursue difficulty when they really believe there is reward and judgment concerning it. When human beings really believe there's joy at the end of this thing, we'll take on all sorts of restrictions. Our problem isn't narrowness, it's his promises. Because if you, if you really believe that doing one thing or pursuing a lifestyle would make you immensely and deeper in your joy, you would take on all sorts of restrictions in order to have it. It happens all the time. This is what dieting is. That's what it is. You see the reward of having health or the judgment of feeling shame and you say it's worth it, paleo or whatever you take on, right? You restrict yourselves for to study, why? You restrict yourselves for a career, why? Because you think there's identity and security and purpose, you'll get through it, money through it. You'll discipline yourself to be better at a craft. You will stand up against the majority of people if you really think they're wrong. If you really think, if I don't say something and I side with them, I'm going to experience the judgment of this generation. It's not about narrowness, it's about promises. Human beings have no problem pursuing narrow ways when they really believe there's blessing and curse at stake. So the question follows, how can you really know then that when Jesus promises life and death that he's right? How can you really know it's really that stark? There's all sorts of arguments that I could give to you from the scriptures, but I, I want to point you primarily to Jesus because that is where God ultimately shows us his promises are that stark and they are that binding. So just start with Jesus' life, just his life. When, if, you, if you read the Gospels, I don't know if you have, if you read the Gospels, you take them serious, you'll never see anyone, never see anyone respond in a way that doesn't show how utterly different Jesus is. Like when you read the Gospels, he's so polarizing and different. The miracles he performs, the teachings he gave, the people that he loved, the people that he challenged, no one responds to Jesus as indifferent. No one's indifferent. No one's like, yeah, Jesus, he's fine, pretty good hang, but I won't talk to him ever again. Like, like no one does that. No one talks to him that way. People fear him, they mock him, they oppose him, they try to kill him or end up killing him, or they adore him, but no one's indifferent towards him. Nobody gets around God in the flesh and is neutral. He's that stark. Then you look at his death. Look at the death of Christ, and I, and I need you to hang in here with me on this one. You look at his death. Jesus' death on the cross teaches us that God will not let any sin go unpunished. God will not let any sin go unpunished. It's not something we talk about often. We tend to downplay its severity because we think we're being kind and loving when we do it. But his death is so central to his work. And death and evil and suffering is so central to the human experience. If you don't have a way to explain that, you don't know how to live this life. And Jesus' death for our sin teaches us that no matter how perfect Jesus was, and he was perfect, death still had to be paid for sin. Think, I've been thinking about this all week. 
Jesus' life was so perfect. It was full of love and full of truth in that perfect mixture. It was full of justice and full of mercy in that perfect mixture. He perfectly acted the way every human being should act. He, he knew how to stand for truth. He knew how to love those who were far. He knew how to do all the things that we would love to be able to do, but we fail at miserably. He's so perfect, and yet he still had to die for us. His perfection alone couldn't save us. His perfection alone couldn't save us. God didn't say, look how perfect my son is. You are all forgiven. No, his perfection was what made him the only valuable being who could pay for our sin. His perfection is essential, but it's not salvific. It doesn't save us until Jesus dies for us. The judgment of God is that severe. So what that means is no one, no one, no matter your story, no matter the complexities, no matter what has been done to you and things have been done to you, all of us have been victims in this room. Some of us more than others, but all of us have been victims in this room. And yet when it comes to God and our sin, none of us escape his judgment. Because if Jesus' perfection couldn't cause God to just merely overlook our sin, how much more will my broken life be subject to his judgment? How much more will your broken life be subject to his judgment? Sin, it's too awful. It's too heinous. I mean, you see evil in the world all the time. And you see it as repugnant. You see it as disgusting as you should. But then you have to deal with the fact when God says, your evil may not manifest like that, but it's still in you. You're still part of this whole human enterprise here. You've still rebelled against God and rejected him, and a good judge does not let evil things go unpunished. Jesus' death teaches us, no, the judgment is that severe. It will either fall on you or it will fall on Jesus, but God will not let sins go unpunished. He teaches us that broad road, he's not bluffing about the destruction. And then in his resurrection, you know what God shows you in Jesus' resurrection? He shows you he won't let, he won't let one moment, one ounce of Jesus' work go unrewarded. So Jesus' death, it's utterly unique, but Jesus is not unique in that he died. Everybody dies. It's not unique that he died. What makes him unique is that he got it from the grave. That's what makes him unique. That's what makes his death so unique is to know, oh, he died in such a unique way that God raised him from the dead. His indestructible life is the key witness on the stand that testifies to us there is not one moment of faith in God that he lets go unrewarded. There's not one moment of faithfulness to God that he doesn't see and say, oh, I will reward that. Jesus is a testimony that even the most unjust death, which he went through, even suffering, which he went through, even being maligned, which he went through, cannot undo the promises of God. He can't, they can't undo it. The resurrection is teaching us, no, when he promises life, he absolutely means it. You look at his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus begins to show you, oh, when God makes promises about both, He's not just trying to sell you. He's being honest about what's real. And then Jesus, 
as he always does. And this is, this is one of those things about Jesus that, that is just always compelling to me that I just find so unique to him as our king, as a leader, is he always models the thing he's calling you to do. He, he has never called you to obey God in a way that he himself hasn't obeyed already. The integrity that he has is like no one else you know. He always leads out in front. So when he says, go down the narrow way, he's saying, I've already been down the narrow way. He's already blazed the trail. He's already taken on more restrictions than you. He's already taken on more difficulty than you. He was God who became a baby. He was God who became dependent. He was God who came to serve all the way to death by those he had created. There's a text in Philippians 2 where Paul begins to unpack for us and teach us who Jesus is in his nature. Maybe you've read this text before. I hope it hits you afresh. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he's gonna describe who is Christ Jesus to us, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is God, and yet he's humbling himself. Verse seven, but he emptied himself. He poured himself out by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that would have been enough. Taking on all those restrictions of being born in the likeness of men. In verse eight, he goes a step further. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. That'd be enough obedient to the point of death, that would be enough. Even death on a cross, that would be enough. He's taking on all of our shame and guilt. He's walking down the narrowest path you could possibly imagine to teach you every promise of God is true. This life you're living, it has consequence. There's purpose, there's meaning. Even if you don't feel it, he's teaching you it's true. But it doesn't end in death in God's promises. Jesus came to give us life, verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. When he says life, church, he means it. He means it. He doesn't make promises like you make promises. He guarantees his. And what's incredible, in this text that we've been studying, there's only one command. The the gates and the paths, Jesus is just describing reality. He's giving you a metaphor to describe reality. There's only one command, and the one command is for you to choose life. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. God, I love that about Jesus. He's telling you all this incredible information for what purpose? Not to shame you but to save you. He, and he, he doesn't say, I'd love to be invited into your heart when you're good and ready. He says, you enter into my life. I've already entered into yours. Now you enter into mine. He's commanding you saying, there's only two paths here. And I want you to choose life. Some of you right now, and I don't know if we know, even know how to be honest all the time, some of you right now, if you could be honest, if we could just look at your heart and look at your mind and what you secretly think about following Jesus, some of you really think that the promises that have been made to you about what the Christian life is like have kind of been empty. 
Like you're thinking, like I heard about joy and peace and contentment and community and love and purpose and I don't really feel those things. Now, some of you are in that place because honestly, you're going through a season of suffering and those things happen when you're going through intense suffering. But others of you, you, you're talk, you think about the Christian life and it doesn't feel that compelling because you're so casual in your approach. You're so spotty in your intentionality. You're like, man, that thing never works that I never use. You know that thing I never do? It never works. This church must be terrible. I'm going somewhere else. Right? Like, like that's, that's what we do. It's like when you're dieting, you go, I had that one salad and nothing changed, Right? You can't access the joys of the Christian life haphazardly. You don't just fall into faith. It requires intentionality, it requires planning, it requires follow through. Listen, grace of God, the grace of God is opposed to you earning your salvation, absolutely and amen. But grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning salvation. Grace is not a post effort. When you see something beautiful for what it is, the grace of God empowers you to obey. Some of you, you have been putting off following Jesus and trusting him because you've just been on the fence because of things in your life and hurts that you've experienced. And you're kind of waiting, like, okay, God, I'll believe. Just give me this one last bit of evidence and I'll believe. Just do this one thing. And you kind of feel distant from God and angry with him, but you kind of keep coming to church and keep coming around Christians. Can I just ask you to quit delaying the inevitable because God's wooing you, he's after you? To go ahead and tonight do that, to actually trust him, to say, God, I don't need any more data. I'm in. I'm in. Don't put off, don't, don't delay actually receiving forgiveness and joy and hope and all the things God's promised. Others of you, you're just so tired. You're weary. Some of you are bored. Some of you just really want to quit. I need you to hear me. Just because every moment on the narrow way doesn't feel like eternal life, it doesn't mean it's not leading you to eternal life. Young Christians, hear me. Don't confuse what's popular for what's good. Don't confuse what's popular for what's true. Fads rise and fall, but the word of God remains forever. Don't give up. Don't give in because when you're on the narrow way, you're gonna want to drift off and see that broad path and think, I wonder how good it is over there. Because listen, this is the last thing. At some level, this happens all the time when I'm talking about people who are thinking about Jesus, I'm not sure where they stand. What, What can happen is we think Jesus requires all this faith, but every other way is certain. Right, Jesus requires faith, but if I didn't, use faith, I get to have these certain paths where I know the outcomes. But the truth is, all of you, no matter where you are with God, all of us are exercising faith in some way that your lifestyle, your decision making, your goals will produce the joys you're after. All of us are exercising faith that if I don't get this thing that I'm really after, that I really love in my heart, if I don't get it, then what will I get? Despair and destruction. Like all of you, when you're sitting there and your mind just drifts and wanders, all of us daydream about certain things. And we begin to daydream and fantasize about those things, if those people, if we could just have that, then I'd be happy. And if your anxiety is, if I don't get that, how awful will life 
be. But the truth is, the truth is, you don't know if it'll be that good when you get that thing you fantasize about. You don't know. You're exercising faith all the time without realizing it. You don't really know that if you get that relationship with that person, that you'll really be as happy as you think you will. You don't. Right? You ever met anybody who has a perfect relationship? Like, man, I would love to have their kind of relationship with that person. Pull them aside and you go, man, how are things going? They go, get me out of here. Right? They're like, hey, what if we just got in the car and we just drive, man? You know? Do you know anybody who's in a relationship they thought that'd make them happy and they're miserable now? You don't know that degree is gonna give you all the things you think it's gonna give you. You don't know that that career path, you don't know that having a family, what if it ends in heartbreak? You don't know. But it feels like, but that's so much more certain and Jesus requires faith, not true. You're always exercising faith that the path you're on is taking you somewhere that's worth it. And the claim of Christianity is that Jesus has come down, back down this narrow way to us who were on it, to us who is called to it, and he's looked at you and said, it's worth it. It's worth it. I've been up there. I've seen the life you're gonna get. It's deeper, it's bigger, it's stronger, it's longer lasting than anything you can have out here. And the destruction on that broad road is as real as God says but you don't have to die. Why? Because he did. That's why the command is enter, enter the narrow way. And I want you to know, some of you tonight, maybe the first time, after 11 o'clock, there was a man who came up and he perceived Jesus for the very first time. But I want you to know, when you become a Christian, you're gonna continually have these fork in the road moments where you're gonna wanna venture into the broad path. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you're gonna come to suffering, fork in the road. You know, come to a doctrine you struggle with, fork in the road. Come to unrepentant sin, fork in the road. Somebody goes to do something really difficult, fork in the road. Get fired from your job, fork in the road. You know, come to these forks in the road, and I'm telling you, in those moments, you're going to want to say, I think God's way is too restrictive. And that's where Jesus is this hope for us. He says, no, you can always find life here, even when it doesn't feel like it. He'll be the one to say, enter the narrow gate. Trust whatever he says. Don't give up, because in due time, you will reap your reward. Let's pray together. Father, the amount, the amount of things that people in this room that I have been convicted about over the last month in our lives. That we have sensed from your word, we have sensed from our lives, from your spirit, that we need to obey in some area, trust you in some area, and the amount of things that we have done nothing about, and we've put off, and we've just drifted and drifted, and we've called it following you, and really there's been no really following of you. God, we don't need any new things to obey. God, we need faith to obey the things you've already called us to. And so for those of us, God, who are sitting here and we don't, we can't really see in our mind's eye this life and this death that Jesus you're talking about. God, right now, would you give us faith to believe that you're true and you know what's right? 
God, some of us in this room, God, some of us in this room, we know the devastating effects of sin. We're here because we've been deceived. We're here because we've been devastated. We're here because we've tried to run away. And God, we can tell everyone in this room, it's not worth it. The promises are empty on that Broadway. And yet we haven't tasted the depths of the life you promise. God, for those who are weary in here, those who are despairing, those who feel guilty, God, would you remind us that it's never our work that guarantees the outcome. Jesus, it's yours. You're the one who blazed the trail. You're the one that's gone ahead. You're the one that keeps encouraging us as we go. You're the one who guarantees that every moment, in our, even our weakest moment of faith and crying out to you, you honor and receive. God, save us from this casual, spotty approach, thinking there's life and so many other things that really can't satisfy. God, even now, help us as a church sing songs in faith that we know, God, you're true. God, and through us, would you show this city, you're the rock when everything else is flimsy. God, use us to show the nations, you're the rock when everything else washes away. That even our sin, God, can't undo what you've done. So God, even now, help us take steps forward of obedience and enter the narrow way because there's life there. We pray all these things in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand. Let's sing together.